This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning, live listeners, and hello, podcast listeners. My name is Emma Williams. Today, I'm going to be sharing insights from Dr. Paul Penn on what psychology has to teach us about how to learn effectively. Don't call it study skills. It's the application of psychology to the process of learning. Stay tuned to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello again, and welcome to my show, which I'm very excited about. And I'll be introducing Paul in just a moment. So Paul Penn is a senior lecturer at the University of East London and spends a lot of his time helping students to study and to communicate more effectively. He holds a BSc and a PhD in psychology, as well as a postgraduate certificate in learning and teaching in higher education. He's a chartered psychologist, an associate fellow of the British Psychological Society, a member of the British Psychological Society's Division of Academics, Researchers and Teachers in Psychology, a chartered scientist and a fellow of advanced higher education. His research interests are in the psychology of teaching and learning and the communication of psychology to the general public. In June 2021, he won the Higher Education Psychology Teacher of the Year Award in recognition of his efforts to improve the communication of what psychology has to say about effective studying. Now, all of that aside, he is also, without a doubt, one of the most straight-talking, down-to-earth, no-nonsense individuals I have ever met. I caught up with Paul earlier this summer, and despite the fact that he'd only recently become a father, he gave me his time and his expertise on the general area of what we can do better to prepare our students for higher education and how universities can support them when they get there. But first of all, I'd like to share um, with you the start of our conversation in which Paul shared what's really going on in our universities since COVID. One of the things that we're struggling with at the moment, it's kind of the sector's dirty little secret, is increasing disquiet about the numbers of students that are actually turning up on campus for lectures. Really? Um, it is, it's a bit of a concern, um, to be honest with you. I mean, I mean, we're waiting for the actual hard data to come in because one of the problems with having quite that rapid pivot to online is that a lot of the mechanisms we had for monitoring attendance and that suddenly didn't work anymore or were a bit iffy or didn't quite sync with teams or whatever you're using so sometimes card data is actually difficult to come by but but judging by the numbers of of bums on seats in lecture theatres it, it does seem that for the while at least we are suffering from a kind of legacy of covid which is that people have become accustomed to studying remotely and of course, the $64 million question is, are they going to want to come back? Uh, have we seen a Pandora's box moment for the sector? Or um, is this just like a temporary transitional thing where, you know, people have obviously had their lives changed by COVID and that's the kind of thing you can't deal with overnight. 
But of course, the government has made itself uh, very clear. It expects universities to revert back to, um, you know, in-person teaching, which is one of those things where you just you just think, I, I wish someone in the government would actually start looking at the evidence and the literature rather than just spouting off. Because they're, they're saying, and, and the, the, the letter from the universities minister said, you know, surveys have shown that students want, uh, you know, in-person teaching. But that's not what we're seeing, you know, in terms of students voting with their feet at the moment good proportion of students are actually staying away and, and engaging remotely and unfortunately in some instances as well not engaging at all exactly what that is and, and how long it will last for I think is, is you know anyone's guess at the moment really it's extraordinary but, isn't it I don't, like you say not engaging at all these people are paying I mean it's it's always a bit of a mystery to me when when people are paying for for you know and quite a lot of money this is no small amount of money particularly for when you're looking at a population that you know even if they haven't left college you know 18 and started uni there because they're obviously not going to be earning a fortune when they they leave university so it'll take them a while to pay that loan off but even with those that have had a reasonably well-paid job or savings and that prior to to start in university it's still a lot of money mm. and uh, and to not take advantage of the things being offered is is strange but that said you know I think you know we'll probably talk about some of the, the misconceptions that people have about studying which make them perhaps a bit more lax than they otherwise would be uh, if they realized how it really worked and I guess for people who need to work online mm. flexibility must have been a real boon I for think them. it was and I think it's hard to go back from as well I yeah. think the problem we're going to have now is is I think the assumption is that it's only going to be difficult for the people that have already experienced, you know, uh, studying for a degree online. The issue that I'm trying to get across is it, it's not just people have orientated their own personal lives around COVID and remote studying and things like that. The people they work for, their employers, have also now got an expectation, well, it can be done this way. So am I now going to be particularly receptive to one of my employees that comes along and says, well, I, I can't do this over time or I can't work these shifts because I've got to study. They'll mm -hmm. say, well, you know, it could be done in the past. You could, you can, you know, study and engage remotely and do it whenever. Mm -hmm. So one wonders whether there's any going back. You think, well, the new normal is here. Just how compatible it is with the old normal that the sector really relies on or has based its mode of operation around is yet to be seen. And I think there's going to be some very uncomfortable changes for the sector. I, I don't think that students, even those that haven't been in university during the pandemic are going to accept a situation where we say you need to be in on campus all of the time mm. i think they'll be like no this doesn't suit my lifestyle now this mm. doesn't suit what i want to do uh, and just forcing people to come in it's not going to work you know you just you you can lead a horse to water as they say but um mm. it's much more effective particularly when we talk about you know education if people want to be there and are mm. motivated to learn rather than drag their kicking and screaming as it were and forced to so um yeah yeah i, I think there is gonna there's gonna be some some difficult times ahead for the sector and, and unfortunately now we're, we're starting to see um universities that are announcing restructuring uh, which is usually a code word for redundancies um, you know, Roehampton, yes. all that, they're, 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 mm -hmm. they're slashing some of their um, programmes or courses, have they referred to them? Yes, I was very aware of that because I'm a classicist, so obviously oh, right. okay. a bit yeah. crazy well, then, on absolutely. classics Twitter. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, it's going to be the, the humanities and particularly the classics and, and things like that that are going to suffer first, unfortunately, is what we're seeing at the moment. So sounds like it's going to be a tough time, as if it hasn't been tough enough for your sector yeah, it is. <laughs> over the last few years anyway. I thought that was fascinating. So the reality in 
higher education at the moment is quite different from the rhetoric that's coming from government, which is that all students want to be in live lectures. Let's get back to normal. What Paul seems to be experiencing is that people want something very different now. And of course, given that how it's changed life for all of us, I guess it's actually not that surprising. And I thought he raised a really good point. It's not just those who've experienced university and been through it whose expectations have been changed. It's employers' expectations who now perhaps won't be quite so keen to give people time to engage with study when they know it can be done remotely and therefore outside working hours. So that was pretty interesting. But moving on to the main reason that I wanted to get in touch with Paul for the show, I met Paul online uh, through his journey into helping youngsters with their study skills. Although, as you will discover, he really doesn't like the term study skills for all sorts of reasons. So this section of our interview is about how I came to meet Paul and his journey into that area. I came across you online through your videos that you were sharing. You did one that went a bit crazy, I think, uh, on learning styles. Oh God! Deba yes, debunking yeah. learning styles, yeah, which I watched with great relish. You were already preaching to the converted there, but uh, and I, I was just really in intrigued. So you work in you're a lecturer in higher education, is that right? You seem That's to specialise right. in helping students with study skills. Yeah, that that almost happened by accident. To be honest with you, I mean, I've always been interested in sort of cognitive psychology, looking at the way people think and reason. But when I started lecturing, you tend to inherit certain topics. And one of those is, is, is you know, the, the kind of study skills part of the equation. But uh, it was interesting because when I first started, I remember thinking, this is great because this is this is a real application of psychology. And I, I, that's what I like about psychology. It's, you know, the application of theory to, to, the, to the real world, if you like. And I was really kind of enthusiastic about it. And I remember talking to a few colleagues and saying, oh, I've got the, the study skills part. And they all gave me that look as if you'd just taken a very sort of, you know, a shot of whiskey or that, like that. And it was like, what's up? And they're like, good luck with that. And, and I couldn't figure out what they, they sort of meant. And, and then I turned up for my first lecture and was was face to face with just tumbleweed. Um, it, it really was. It was not, there was barely anyone in the lecture theatre. People that were there looked like they were really not, not there in, they were there in body, but not in spirit or person, <laughs> as it were. And I remember thinking, what's going on? Because this should be an easy sell. You know, you've got people here that are, you know, reasonably well educated, that are presumably very motivated, and they and the session was was well advertised, and yet there was this real disengagement, and and that started me getting interested in in what is it about the way that people think about studying, learning that might act as a sort of you know almost like barrier to them engaging with help that's readily provided. And part of that, I think, was just the fact that study skills has a lot of baggage associated with it. And you know, I, I don't like the term study skills precisely because it tends to suggest a kind of very remedial approach. It tends to be very divorced from evidence. It's just usually people that are very well meaning and not always wrong, but, you know, pontificating or talking from experience and anecdotes. And it, and it tends to have this false dichotomy between study and employability and, and all of that stuff. And I'm thinking, if, we are, if we're saying to students that when you're at university, you have to have a level of academic rigor, then they will expect that of us when we're talking about the most important thing, which is how to learn. 
And I just didn't see that. It was almost like people were trying to spare the audience of the, the research and the evidence and all the good stuff. And I couldn't figure that out. So I very quickly started, stopped calling it study skills and said, look, it's the application of psychology to studying, or this is what psychology has to say about how to learn effectively. Uh, and that started to, to, to break through the resistance a little bit more. And when I started giving the lectures and, and the kind of the word got out, people were, were a lot more interested. And, and a student came up to approach me after one of the lectures and said, the interesting thing about this is no one's ever tried to persuade us that we need this before. Uh, and for me personally, I needed persuading because I felt like what I was doing was effective. But having just listened to what you've said, it would appear that that sense, that confidence, if you like, is at least to some extent illusory. Um, so I'm going to give what you suggest a go. Uh, and that really kind of reinforced this idea that, you know, we do need to be very careful that the scholarship and the standards of scholarship that we're using when we're talking to students about how to study are the same as they would be accustomed to within their discipline, be that physics, geography, the classics, whatever else, um, because otherwise they will rightfully look at it and go, well, this just seems like second class scholarship or this just doesn't seem, hasn't got the standard of evidence we've come to expect from studying in higher education. So, so that's what got me started. And then I just thought, it'd be a pity if this wasn't in a book or something, wouldn't it really? <laughs> so I thought it's got to have been done before, surely. You know, someone's already done this. It must have been covered. Um, so I had a quick look around and, and surprisingly, certainly in the UK, no one had really done an evidence-informed or psychology-based book on, on how to study effectively. It's extraordinary, um, isn't it? Yeah, when it you is. When think about um, it, 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 that is extraordinary you must have been hunting and hunting going come on somebody must have done this yeah yeah absolutely and, and there's a couple in the states one of which had been out for some time uh, one of which was in progress by a wonderful group called the learning scientists um, i've come across them they yeah, seem fantastic yeah um and they've got some wonderful resources posters uh, and lecture slides and things like that um which which people can readily access but really, there, there wasn't much. And again, it was that thing, I think, where the assumption was that if you start explaining the evidence behind things, it becomes academic and dry and boring and no one's going to want to engage. They just want to be told what to do. But that's the thing. People don't generally just want to be told what to do. They want to explain no. to them. They want to be persuaded. Yeah. Um, and for that, you need the kind of exposition that our psychologists are used to. It's that the, the art of persuasion, the art of using evidence, uh, formulating arguments, things like that. I produced a book and I think it's still really one of only about, I, mean, I can think of certainly for higher education, probably only another two books, both of them, I think, from the United States. When you get to schools, there are there are more resources, some of which are focused on specific techniques like retrieval practice. Well-known book, I've just forgotten the author's name, please forgive me. It's actually called Retrieval Practice, if memory serves correctly. Kate Jones? I think it might be Kate Jones, actually. Yes, I think you're right. Thank you. But there are there are specific resources about particular techniques and, and how to implement in the classroom. Um, but there wasn't really anything that provided an overview. And what I was trying to do is is address not just how to how to read and take notes, or how to revise, but also just things like misconceptions and myths about learning. How do you go about um, managing your time and resisting procrastination? Because a lot of traditional advice on time management, you know, this usual stuff about make a, make a timetable and all that. Yeah. But if that's just laid to waste by procrastination, which is very common in students, then that's going to amount to nothing. 
So I was also looking at academic integrity. I was looking at how do you work more effectively with people, how to give presentations, how to use visual aids more effectively, how to prepare coursework, the psychology of you know writing in many ways and, and writing clearly. Um, so it's all under one kind of umbrella, and I sort of shoved that in the book, and and then the, the YouTube channel came from there really. And it was partly a result of the, the lockdown where we all had a bit more time on our hands. And, and also, I think there was there was real impetus to start thinking about, well, look, some of this is going to remote delivery now. So I need to up, up, up skill, as it were, and learn how to be a content creator, because effectively, that's what I'm going to be doing for a little while. So I started the YouTube channel really as a companion to the book. And that that was a real eye opener. That's been really gratifying to do, because uh, I think in some ways, it, it's what uh, particularly that you know uh, the the younger folk among us expect now they've been brought up on you know youtube and and, and web 2.0 so for academia not to embrace that is is probably going to seem very strange to them mm -hmm. um so that's been that's been really good and it, it's nice to better provide some bite-sized chunks in a kind of video format from the book um just to someone who might not want to read the book or buy the book you know they, they can just engage with some short videos that give them some some snippets of advice so that that's really how it started it, it was it was more i think just a happenstance initially and then i sort of took the ball and run with it really and thought actually this is really interesting and it's not really been done particularly well uh, or, or and it's certainly not it's one of i think steve pinker very kindly endorsed my book and he said that basically learning to learn is one of psychology's great unsung gifts to the world. Uh, that unsung bit is, is critical. And as you say, it's very surprising because you yeah. think that's the first thing we do with psychology. Yeah. That's the one application that benefits everyone. You know, if you know how to learn, it doesn't matter what subject you do, you're, you're going to prosper or you'll certainly do better than you would have done uh, if you approached it just for guesswork as it were. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, that's how it got started. And, and, and since then I've been trying to, um, kind of orientate lectures and, and content around convincing people that the way that you may think works when it comes to learning and studying may not be what evidence from psychology suggests is, is how you should be doing it. I find younger students quite resistant to advice. I get things like, oh, that doesn't work for me, or I know what works for me. But do yeah. you, have you found that because you're presenting them with higher level evidence from cognitive science that they're more, more persuadable because of the, that approach? Uh, yes and no. I think you have to start off with, before you give any advice about the specifics of how to study, you have to start by addressing the fact that, that many, many times our perception of what works is inaccurate. Because once you've, once you've got people to buy into that and to accept the evidence on that, they're then more amenable to addressing the way they go about studying because that argument i know what works for me ah but do you because right. what what we know about metacognition and things like that suggests that often people have quite illusory and usually quite flattering ideas about how well they learned but i mean there are a whole raft of, of metacognitive issues that can that can arise that can really be very deceptive in, in, in lull you into thinking that the way that you're studying is working better than it is. So people often make erroneous judgments of learning. So for example, so if, if you're reading, for example, and you're re repeatedly rereading the text, that text will start to feel familiar to you. 
and you'll think to yourself well actually if someone asked me a question about that now i i i'll be right on it you know i'd know it but the problem is you, you haven't considered the conditions under which you're likely to be able to recall that information where the information is no longer in front of you anymore so that's a really basic error but people do that all the time people conflate short-term performance with longer-term learning so what they'll do is, is they'll use study strategies that feel, at least in the short term, like they're working, you know, cramming being a, a good example. And what will tend to happen is if you test yourself immediately, you might do reasonably well. So you think, great, this is working. But what tends to happen is that knowledge has no durability. Uh, and then, you know, if the exam's in a few days time or a few weeks down the line, or you're asked about that topic, you know, um, a couple of months later, you won't recall it. Uh, and, and a good little thought experiment now is if you get a lot of students that are, you know, at university to try and run back to their GCSEs and say, how much of that stuff you crammed for geography do you actually remember? They'll go, none of it. Absolutely none <laughs> of it. They'll probably remember something really obscure. That's what tends to happen. And the, the issue there is what feels good and what feels easy isn't working that well. Whereas what feels like it's not working because it's difficult and it's challenging you and it's not giving you those reassuring short-term signs about your learning is actually what works a lot better because it's forcing you to align what you think you know with what you actually know it's mm. kind of metacognitive correction if you like so uh, and that's something which you really have to address with students because that that metacognition that idea of learning about learning and our, our knowledge about learning and our ability to implement that knowledge it is really important and, and that's something i think that that certainly schools will be very wise to focus on because it's something which i think is there's a lot of evidence for and that's not reflected in the if you like the instruction that students get you know as soon as people are aware that your your impressions and your thinking about the way that you learn and the amount you know may be very misleading then they're more they're more open then to being persuaded by okay this doesn't work so well because of x y and z try this instead uh, and that's kind of critical because particularly i mean it's using yourself with children but particularly at university they you know people become attached to bad ideas and bad ways of doing it and they, they just persevere on the basis well this is how i've done it um all along getting them to to um abandon or relinquish those ideas can be can be quite difficult but, you know, some basic knowledge about psychology can do that. Metacognition, what it is, why it's important, that kind of stuff is very important to get across. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I continue with my series on home connection and getting the best performance. The question today is wired or wireless connection, which is best? In the past, the wired connection was considered the fastest and this would be the end of the episode. However, modern wireless speeds are comparable with a wired connection. So what factors affect performance? The first factor to consider is can you actually connect via a wire? Some devices don't have an ethernet or 
compatible port to have a wired connection. Being hardwired allows a more stable connection. You're not relying on high frequency waves to transmit your data and waves are susceptible to interference in the shape of distance from the transmitter receiver, in human language, your hub. Then there are walls, furniture, other devices, basically anything that gets in the way. So the first tip is, if possible, use a wired connection. At home though, this is easier said than done. You need to be reasonably close to your home hub as this is where the ports are and sometimes that's not a great place to work. If you are after a wired connection away from your hub, then take a look at using power line adapters. These are two plugs that use your existing home electric wiring to create a virtual wired connection to anywhere in the building that has a plug socket. They are relatively cheap and some can also be used as wireless extenders, allowing you to create a better Wi-Fi coverage in dark spots in your home. At around 30 to 50 pounds, it's a relatively cheap and aesthetically pleasing option compared to running cables around your home. Meshing is the next solution to improve coverage. More recently, homes have been adopting the mesh system. Meshing is linking wireless access points together to extend their range. All have the same sign-in so you can seamlessly move from one to the other with uninterrupted connection. Starting at around £80, it's a more expensive option, but if you only have devices that use Wi-Fi, this might be the answer for you. With most home networks, after bandwidth availability, interference is your next enemy. Always try to place your home hub in the most central place if the telephone sockets allow, otherwise consider power line adapters or meshing. Most modern internet providers give you options to buy these devices from them. This will guarantee it works for your network, but be aware this will come at a higher price tag. If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. Why not get in touch at CC Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. Welcome back to my show with Dr. Paul Penn, uh, author of The Psychology of Effective Studying. So our discussion moved on to memory and the dreaded evil of procrastination, which is, of course, the enemy of every student who has ever studied. I think a lot of the the poor study practices emerge from a very fundamental misunderstanding of how memory works. And I think that that misunderstanding in a nutshell is that memory works as being reproductive rather than reconstructive. So people tend to think about memory as functioning like a bit like a dodgy camera that, that reproduces him. And it really doesn't work like that. M memory is reconstructive. And it puts things together in a way that is informed directly by our expectations, by our experience, by our previous knowledge. So the, the key to memory is really abandoning this idea that you just got to click your eyes and then or you stare at something long enough and it goes into your brain, as it were, and accepting that the way to remember things is to think about them, basically. And the more you think about them and the more you can integrate them with what you know and the more you can you can think through how they relate to previous knowledge and, and how they might confound or support your expectations, the more likely you are to remember that information. 
I think uh, Daniel Willingham, I, I think, put it beautifully once. He said, uh, memory is the residue of thought. Yes. I, I, I wish I could think of a better way to put it, but I just can't. <laughs> and I think if students can take nothing away from psychology but that, once you accept that, just staring at a textbook is self-evidently not going to work anymore. Just getting a highlighter pen out and using it as if it were a barcode scanner, self-evidently, <laughs> is not going to work anymore. What they is love their highlighters. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, again, it feels good, doesn't it? Because it yeah. looks like work. Yeah, like at the end of it, you think, look at that, I've highlighted all the keywords. And oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I mean, if you, if you borrowed the book from the library, they're not going to be too happy with you. But, you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it looks like work. It looks mm. like progress, but it's not. You know, it's just not going to be effective. So I think just knowing that about your memory, that it, it wants you to think about things, it wants you to integrate things, it wants you to form links between things. That's one of the things that students need to know about, just how, fundamentally how your memory works. Uh, and when you look at the evidence about how people tend to study, what you'll find is people tend to rely most heavily on the, the methods of study and like repeatedly rereading things that work the least effectively. So there's this weird kind of discontinuity between what works and what people do yeah. so uh, yeah that's something we, we definitely need to address fascinating have you seen any improvement in the undergraduates that are coming out of schools because i would say in my teaching career things have got a lot better in terms of teachers engaging with this kind of knowledge i think there's been quite a, a sort of quiet revolution in the last five to ten years are you seeing that having have any impact or are we not enough of us getting through to students yet i think that the problem is yes i i do see some some evidence of impact so you know these days if i if i do a lecture and i talk about um neuromyths or misconceptions about learning um like learning styles being a good one that you'll see some nods of right. around okay. that perhaps you wouldn't have seen you know maybe 10 years ago interesting um, but again, it's one thing to know about quite prominent myths about learning. So at least we won't have people saying, I'm a visual learner, therefore, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But well, I mean, the, the, the issue with that, though, is that there's been a few quite recent literature reviews and meta-analyses which tend to indicate that, unfortunately, things like learning styles, you know, the cone of learning and all that stuff, it is still it is still, still quite endemic. prevalent in education yeah, it yeah. It absolutely is yeah, um, there's still people churning it out and, st and still people yeah. will get upset when you say it doesn't exist I mean, yeah. uh, recently we've had uh back well two or three years ago a, a parent get getting very upset when mm. our head of department said learning styles don't exist and yeah, yeah. Parent, well I, i'll send you all this research on it and of course he was able to, to send quite a few links mm. uh to mainly american pieces saying how you know how important learning styles were yeah it's, it's not based on any kind of experimental evidence whatsoever um, no, it's, none, none it's frustrating mm. um but you know but it is that it's useful that at least some of the students are getting the message as it were but obviously we, we've got to focus on the educators because they're the ones teaching the students and the students will emerge from from school and from college with the you know the benefit or otherwise of what they've been taught there the, the problem is i think is is that it's one thing to know about what what is nonsense if you like what definitely doesn't work it's another thing that that students are subtly persuaded and convincingly persuaded that the things that they're doing 
um, which you know don't relate to learning styles and that kind of stuff, but do feel right to them, um, may not be working and to give them a, a suitable alternative, which isn't going to be or isn't going to seem like a huge amount more work for a small amount of gain. Yeah. And this is where we have to be a bit careful because the education sector, probably like any sector, is subject to fads. Uh, yes. one of the one of the big ones, for example, is growth mindset. You know, mm -hmm. and people are so enamored with growth mindset. Uh, uh, and when you look at the evidence for it, it's extremely limited, uh, you know, and, and the effect size is not that a small effect size should necessarily be an impediment to, to looking into something and to implementing it. But you have to look at a, a gains to to cost ratio. Yes. And if you happen to produce a, a, a very big intervention to produce only a small gain, then when I say, is there a better way of doing this? Mm -hmm. But, you know, nonetheless, you know, growth mindset has just swept through the education industry, you know, and, um, you know, bless her, Carol Dweck has, has done very well out of it. But yeah. the popularity and its acceptance are not matched by the volume of evidence that supports its use. No. Whereas if you go to something like metacognition, for example, and you start looking at things like retrieval practice and you start looking at things like um, spaced learning or distributed practice and things like that, mm. there's, there's, there's decades of evidence that are, that are almost as well without question supportive. And that's very rare in psychology. We're quite an argumentative bunch and <laughs> humans, humans by their nature are very noisy and it, often the results you get are very subject provisos and the qualifications it works yeah. under these circumstances but maybe not here or with this group of people or under these conditions or it works in a lab but not in a classroom mm -hmm. but these kind of the things that i'll probably get around to talking about in a minute are, are so robust and so reliable that it's mm -hmm. like it, it would be crazy not to use them really i mean that it's it's almost inexcusable in some ways that, yeah. that, that that some people are still harping on about things like learning styles and well and teachers that have embraced it and and i include myself in this mm -hmm. I, I look back at myself a few years back and think what was i doing whereas mm -hmm. now with the space learning and the constant retrieval i've got the you know, the weakest students in my class can reel off their verb endings with confidence and apply them and you think that that never happened before yeah. and it's simply by applying those very simple principles yeah absolutely and the wonderful thing is really hard to throw a spanner in the works of them as well it, yeah. it just it, you know you don't have to be very prescriptive you don't have to do it under very specific conditions just the principle it seems that mm -hmm. is, is uh, and we need to start looking at why people might be perhaps um reluctant or not even necessarily reluctant but find it difficult to implement some of these strategies so for example you know um distributed practice or you know taking advantage of the spacing effect you know one of the reasons people struggle with that is because people have a tendency to procrastinate you know and leave things to the last minute so it's not like they're being awkward it's just that your, your attempts to try and get them to space out their studying has been undermined by the specter of procrastination as it were yeah. you know so understanding that process uh, yeah. and how you can you can address that and is, again acknowledging that that is actually a very normal part of being a human being but that's how absolutely yeah <laughs> we, absolutely we all do it every single yeah. one of us even uh, those of us that are quite motivated surprise surprise when you look at the research on procrastination and you look at the predictors of procrastination the free villains of the piece you don't you procrastinate on things that you find boring um you procrastinate on things that you perhaps resent doing <laughs> and you procrastinate on things that you are not especially confident in your ability to do yeah. so if you're studying and you're using ineffective study methods and it's making the process complete sure and you're not seeing progress guess what's going to happen <laughs> procrastinate on it 
But yeah. equally, if you start getting results out of study and you start learning about how to do it and you start seeing the, the you know the positive benefits, it makes it that less unappealing to get involved with. It tends to reduce the uh, tendency to procrastinate. So total makes total sense, doesn't it? It, it, it? In so many ways, this is what I love about Paul. He just talks common sense and yet he's got the actual concrete research to back up what he's saying and therefore persuade his students in academia. We're going to move on now to the part of the discussion where I really quiz Paul on the shift between school and higher education, because it's something that I have got some concerns about. I do feel that the excessive extent to which we are put under the pressure to spoon feed our students is in many ways not providing them with the right kind of preparation for higher education. And it does seem that Paul agrees with me and he's particularly raising concerns about being very cautious about using model answers. One of the things I see is very different when you make that leap into higher education, certainly as I remember it, is the importance of note taking. And I'm not sure that is something that we model very well in schools yet. Would you agree? And, and if so, what do you think we can do about that process? Yeah, I, I would agree. And you see this in the university all, all of the time. And, and weirdly enough, when you actually look at the literature, if you try and examine the literature on you know, note taking per se, as opposed to perhaps some of the psychological processes that might be behind it, then it's actually quite difficult to find compelling evidence for particular strategies. What tends to happen is you, you will find evidence to suggest that sometimes just thinking about the way you're going to organise something is as good as taking notes down on it, uh, which, which is quite interesting, particularly when you're planning essays and things like that. Sometimes just actually thinking about it can be as beneficial as taking notes. That very much depends on the way you're going about taking notes. And I think the big problem there is that, again, people are assuming that their memory works on a much more reproductive than reconstructive nature. And their idea of taking notes is either highlighting, copying stuff down almost verbatim, or maybe marginally trying to paraphrase, but not particularly convincingly, and not really thinking about the material enough. And the way to address that is to try and use a method of note taking that forces you to one, periodically test yourself, but also to question and explain things, because that's, if you like, the catalyst for good note taking. There's a method called um, elaborative interrogation. I don't know if you've, that one's familiar to you. No. Um, but but what it what it basically advocates is that when you're taking notes on, on a passage of text, for example, intermittently throughout reading, what you do is you, you ask, your, you actually annotate the text of the question. And your role then is to answer that question. Try and ask why questions. Why is this happening? Or, you know, why does this go or how? If you start off question with why or how, it puts the onus on you to explain it. Explanation is a wonderful aid because explanation requires thinking. If mm -hmm. you have to explain something, you will, the chances are you will remember it afterwards because you've had to invest the time and effort to deconstruct it, to think it and to put it back together again. And the wonderful thing about explanation is it usually does kind of compel you to write and to, to note take in your own words. So elaborative interrogation works very nicely. You can, you can just annotate periodically the text with questions that require you to explain important terms and concepts. And then your job is to go for those questions, put the source to one side, 
side and just try and explain as best you can, which, of course, initially will go all shades of wrong and you won't be able to do it. Mm. But that's fine. You go back to the text. Then you have an idea of what you can't do so you can refine your learning. It's like I just this this bit I got, but this bit I couldn't remember at all. And that then gives you a basis for interrogating the literature again. You go back to it and you say, OK, oh, that's the relevant bit of text now that I need to focus in on more because that's the bit I couldn't recall before. And that's the kind of key thing. I always say to people, why are you reading something? And if they say, oh, it's because my teacher or my tutor told me to, <laughs> I'll say, but that's no good. How can you get any answers from something if you don't have any questions? You know, you, you have to interrogate your sources with respect to questions, because if you have questions, then by definition, you can get answers. But if you just look at a text and you read aimlessly, well, it's not surprising you're not going to get anything out of it because you haven't you haven't asked anything of it in the first place. Mm. So that process of questioning text and responding to those questions with explanation is a really good approach to note taking. Another one is read, recite, re review. That's it, isn't it? So um, I'm, I'm asking you if that's it now, but I'm actually trying to remember <laughs> myself, as it were. It, so the, basically, I'll remember it as I reconstruct it in my own head. What you do is you read a passage of text. Um, you put the passage to one side and you try and recite the text. And then you compare how well you've managed to recite it, the review part, with the original text. And obviously that then informs, OK, well, how well have I got this? Um, and the chances are initially you'll need to do that a few times before you're reasonably confident. And I say the, the original research on that was done by just verbally reciting the text, but actually it works really well as a note taking strategy. So if you just try and put the text to one side and then just take notes or write down what you can remember, compare your notes in their very primitive form to the source, but only for factual accuracy. Don't yeah. compare it for, are you as eloquent? Are you being as extensive or anything like that? Have you captured the crux of it? If not, have another look at the text, then have another go at refining your notes. That's brilliant. So it's just that's the one, the only real difference is that you're just putting the text to one side rather than working from it. But in doing that, you're forcing yourself to recall. Exactly. And then checking, yeah. checking for accuracy. That's, that's, Brilliant. I wish I'd known this when I was at university. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're also what, what's happening as well in the process, because I mean, as you'll know from from using retrieval practice and things like that, an inability to recall something is still very helpful. Yes. It's not yeah. just if you can recall it, that's brilliant. If you can't, you failed. Fa recall failures are actually an integral part of the learning process and are very valuable because they are metacognitively correcting. They, 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 they then make the information salient because you're like, I don't know that. I don't like not knowing that. I need to go and find the relevant bit of information that will tell me what I need to know rather than I need to read the whole chapter aimlessly and hope one thing will blooming sink in, as yeah, it were, you know. Yeah. So I, that, that kind of feedback and that get involved in that iterative process. And I think that's a key thing to understand that, that often when you're trying to take notes, it should be an iterative process. Mm. It shouldn't just be, I'll get it first time and that will be fine because it probably won't. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's the two useful ways of doing it using the three R approach, but also that process of elaborative interrogation, because it really is it's, it's key that you you read with a purpose and you question the material, because mm. questioning is a catalyst for thinking, particularly if the questions are, how does this work or why does this happen? Mm. And then if you have to explain that yourself, once you can explain it, very, very good chance you'll recall it. And it sounds like those two techniques could be really effective at university, depending on what, like you say, your goal or your purpose is. So hmm. to prepare for a small group seminar where yeah. I've been asked to read a few texts and then come along to the seminar for a discussion, yeah. I would use the questions. 
Yeah. Because that is going to prepare me for a discussion out of which I will then get more stimulus. Mm. Whereas if I'm preparing for an examination, I would probably use the three R's because that's more about how I'm, I'm absorbing information, getting it into my head in preparation for being tested on it. Basically, I mean, anything you can do to force yourself to have to recall stuff mm. uh, without the benefit of the source and then reflect on how well you've managed to capture that source is a good thing. Again, because what, you, what you're doing is you're kind of using your memory in the way it's intended to. You're saying, OK, you have to reconstruct this information. Let's have, see how well you've done. Oh, you've got that bit right. That bit's hopeless. That bit's pretty good. Let's go back now and selectively zero in on the bits that need the the focus, as it were, rather than just trying to read it all again um, aimlessly without any kind of indication of how your learning should be informed by your previous performance. So it, it's just really getting insight, that metacognitive insight, um, and anything you can do in that respect is, is going to help you. Um, yeah. Because otherwise, what tends to happen is people just read far too much in one sitting. And again, it it feels like a slog, so it feels like you might have achieved something. Mm. But then if you if you try and test yourself on it, you'll be amazed at how little you'll be able to remember of any of it. Because, you know, your, your, your memory just is not good at trying to, if you like, capture that much information at once in that smaller time frame. Again, I mean, you, you've alluded to the fact you've tried to get students to, you know, use the spacing effect, for example. And uh, the cramming is a, is a classic example of that people study in a way that they think feels like it works but really doesn't work that well and I mean we should be honest about it it's not like it doesn't work at all I mean um, hands up you know me and Indeed, yeah. got by exams in the GCSE by cramming like a demon oh, 100%. Um, but do I remember any of it now god no um, yeah so but, therefore you need to you certainly want to be applying very different techniques when this is your thing this is what yeah. you're studying for the long term and, and you want to remember absolutely remember yeah. the stuff and, yeah. and it makes it much less of an all the problem with cramming is it's bloody unpleasant as well mm. it's not not you know everyone's been there you know at probably two in the morning with the red <laughs> ball or the, the intravenous line of coffee straight into the veins you know <laughs> eyes taped open looking at the screen and it's not a pleasant process yeah. and the, although the the alternatives are are more effortful they're also a lot more engaging because one of the things that concerns me about the way education has been over the last 20 years is the increasing pressure on teachers to get the grades means mm. that we increasingly impose ourselves on students and do so much for them that yeah. you literally get to the point where you think i i, I can't do anymore it, it mm. really is over to you now and I, I am wrung out and then i do worry that when they go on to university if it's anything anything even remotely like it was in my day and they won't have that same safety net of support that they won't know where to start yeah that that is a big one because one of the key differences between studying at sixth form in school for example and then going on to university is that the independent learning aspect of it you know where mm. suddenly you are to a large extent on your own yeah get on uh, with it yeah. you know the, the independent study and I, and I will harp on to this for to anyone that will listen to me accounts for the majority of students time at university yeah. Um, so I always ask the question, why aren't we paying more attention to this? Because what happens outside of the classroom is as important, if not more important than what happens in the classroom. We have students now, and it's very common, unfortunately, that come into university and they don't know how to write an essay purely because they, they haven't really had to do it off their own back. 
they haven't had to go out there and, for example, look up the literature off their own back and decide right. what's relevant, decide what's and not. And they'll have been given a writing frame. I mean, and in fact, I've seen this in schools where, where I said, well, I've, so this is it. And I, I feel I've modelled it quite well for them. And yeah. then they say, right, you have a go. And they'll go, how do I start? Yeah. And I realise that in some subjects, they're literally given a, a gap fill for the first sentences. They're given such a frame. And I think, oh, I, I think that's the line for me. I'm not going there. I well, refuse to do it. It's not good for learning as well, because I mean, an essay is an argument, basically. So the way you think and you formulate an argument, you have to think about structure. You have to mm. come to your own decision about what set, what order do I have this information in for it to make sense? How do I connect these disparate chunks of information up? If that's yes. being done for you, you're not benefiting from the exercise. If you're not being asked to make decisions about what's relevant and what's not and why, then again, you're not benefiting from the exercise and you won't benefit from the knowledge as well, because you're not having to selectively look at information and say, is this relevant? If so, why? And part of that, obviously, in the process of doing that, means you're much more likely to remember that information as well, because you've had to make an executive judgment about whether it's relevant to the particular essay title or question you've been set. Mm. So, so giving them far too much to do it ensures they might get, by some measures, a tick box good grade because they've done X, Y and Z because we haven't really given them the scope to go wrong. It's almost like a, a, a really bad application of an errorless learning paradigm, isn't it? Where you just don't give them the scope to go wrong. But mm. here's the thing, learning requires that you do things wrong mm. or you do things suboptimally and then you learn from them. That's the whole point. And, and if you don't give students the chance to, to get a little bit lost and you don't give them the chance to actually engage in the processes, you do it for them, they don't learn anything from it. And we see this a lot. The first thing that students will often ask when we set an essay is, is there a model answer? And it's like, no. That, there that's isn't. Our, that's our fault, hands up. Exactly <laughs> what will happen if I do give you a model answer as well, you know? And, and to be fair to yeah. them, why wouldn't you? If you're putting something up as an exemplar of, if this is what we think is a first class essay, mm. why wouldn't people emulate that? That's the easy yeah. way of doing it. It's not the right way of doing it, obviously, but it's the easy way of doing it. Um, it, it is. I am very disquieted by model answers. I have to say it's the one thing in the sort of new ways of doing things that I have resisted. I've occasionally modelled two or three sentences. So, for example, this is what I mean by embedding your quotation. Yeah. You know, show them specifically what you mean. But yeah. then I only model planning. I mean, there, there, need to be, there need to be exemplars of what constitutes good performance. The students can understand it how, it, how it works in practice. But there's a difference between doing that and saying, when I say relevancy, here's an example of a relevant sentence or a relevant paragraph. Yes. And here's a template for the entire essay. Hmm. Or here's exactly what topics we expect you to cover. Mm. Um, because then you, you've you've disengaged them, you've you've marginalised and excluded them from the process of learning because you've told them what to do, um, and that's something we have a lot of problems with in, in higher education. In my experience, I mean, I don't have the research on the numbers here, but I often see students very attached to I need the model answer. So, would you see value in, for example, students looking at other students' answers and critiquing rather than a teacher's model answer? There's increasing evidence for peer peer um, peer review now, um, as it's mm. called a peer evaluation. Um, it's a very useful exercise, um, and it's also it's useful. You don't even necessarily have to apply it to other students' work, although it, it can be easier to be objective and and because you you don't when you're looking at someone else's work, you don't know what they're trying to say. You've just got what's on paper. If you look at your own work, particularly if it's a fairly recent piece mm. of work, you know exactly what you meant and you interpret it accordingly. But you can do that with your own work as well. And yeah. then you can take that to a tutor and say, here's what I've just applied this grading criteria. Here's 
what I make of it. Let's have a discussion. Do you agree? Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's surprising how beneficial that kind of stuff can be. And it, mm. it really does promote understanding of grading criteria um, to actually practice it, applying it to your own work, to other students' work. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's definitely peer, peer evaluation is something which I think probably needs to be utilised more. Yeah. Quite often when we've done this at uni, we found that students are harsher judges of work than, than the lecturers are. Yes, I think that's true. Yeah. And I think there is some research to suggest that does hold em empirically as well, where, you know, they'll have got they're taking the mean mark from the students, the mean mark from the lecturers, and the students tend to produce a lower mean mark than mm. the lecturers do. I have to say, the very notion of there being grading criteria when I was doing my degree and the idea that I could go to a lecturer, say, this is what I think the essay, that just was not going on in the 1990s. I don't know if that, that was just my university, but it, clearly things have greatly moved on in higher education. But I think it's absolutely fascinating to get a lecturer's take on the impact that the way lots of schools are doing things now is having on students in higher education and I had certainly always suspected that we weren't doing them the best of services by not letting them practice how to write an essay completely independently but I'd never really looked at it from the angle that Paul comes to it which is actually what you're doing is not only disengaging them but disenfranchising them from the process of learning because he's so passionate about memory being reconstructive and he believes that writing an essay is construction and of course he's absolutely right you're formulating an argument he, his point is you're making them miss out on that learning and I never really thought about it from that point of view it's really given me pause for thought so this is the close of uh, my interview with Paul uh, and his final thoughts before we say farewell. Students often are a lot more digitally literate than we are. You know, they, they know how to access things. I don't need any problem with that, you know, but information literacy is another thing. And I think the problem is digital literacy is advanced much quicker than information literacy. Yes, and they're, that, they're not good at selecting sources and understanding what. Yeah. And evaluating evaluating those. those sources and go well hang on mm. yeah and that's a consequence sometimes if you give people model answers and you tell them what to include you exclude them from needing to do that so it's yes. not surprising them when they get to uni they're like well how do i know what source mm. is good and what isn't and there's some really simple stuff from from psychology you know things like you know cognitive fallacies uh, logical fallacies things like that so there's some ones that really students need to know about because they are really i mean they've always been relevant but they are really prescient now with mm. the misinformation and the, the amount yeah. of you know information how quickly it can go viral bad information can go viral online um so things like the mere exposure effect where the more you know if you see something frequently enough you start to assume it's true Mm. And that, of course, is nonsense because it could just be the product of it going viral because someone very famous has posted something completely nonsensical, mm. you know, so knowing about that kind of stuff, our tendency to read truth into things we see most frequently, knowing about an appeal to authority. So someone saying, you know, oh, you have to believe this because it was postulated by X, Y and Z, who's got X number of PhDs, and whatever else. So what does the mm. argument make sense? You know, mm. is it supported by evidence? Yeah. It's like cherry picking you know, things that look overwhelmingly in support of something, well, maybe they've just given a very small selection of the evidence that's available. Mm. You know, um, ad hominem, all the usual stuff, people attacking someone's character rather than their argument. If you if you can prime people and you get them familiar with that kind of stuff, 
you give them a platform from which to start sharpening their critical evaluation teeth. But mm. if students don't know about that, and if you've given them the sources and you said this is a good source, you, you've again you've excluded them from the um, from the process, as it were. So yeah. I think that's that'd be a useful thing for students to know as well. And so many essays are ruined by students trying to sound clever. Yeah. Where it's like and actually, it's just word salad. It's word salad, yeah. yeah. And you can see what's happened because academics can be terrible at this. I remember reading once there was a review of educational psychology journals. Uh, the very people who you would expect to be able to write clearly, concisely, and get for, across the information in a very, you know, straightforward manner. And they just did a review of, they, they, they put the flash reading level uh, test on, on educational psychology journals, this very prominent one. And they found that the score, the average score, was right at the, the top end of, you would need to have postgraduate qualifications to stand any chance of understanding it. Mm. You know, and you're thinking, there's no need to make a piece that complicated, no. particularly if it's about something that's really important and you want to get to as broad an audience as possible. I mean, Socrates made this point 3000 years ago. If you cannot explain it and define it in simple terms, you don't understand it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, clarity and concision mm. over anything else. It's not how clever you sound. It's how readily you can be understood. Mm. Because sounding clever just often makes you look like yeah a, a, a bit pretentious quite frankly yeah um, and, and it just detracts from what you're trying to say the clarity of that and I think students have bad ideas sometimes going into university about the need to sound uh sophisticated mm, where actually the whole purpose of being an academic is to is to convey knowledge mm. and, and if you're not if people are saying oh god I can't I can't read that person's work it's just too much effort mm. or, or that they're thinking you're smart but can't articulate or explain why you, you're not doing your job it's that simple yeah. Yeah, um, I completely um, agree. So I, I do worry a lot that we are not setting students up for higher education. It's something I think we really need to be thinking harder about mm, in schools, yeah. I suspect. I think if there's one thing I, I probably, you know, end with, it's just if you can do nothing else, it is just make sure that students leave um, with an awareness of, of how to learn effectively, an evidence-based awareness. Um, it's some practice in applying strategies that we know work, like retrieval practice, um, you know, like spacing out your, your studying and things like that. And also that they, they, they have some awareness that, you know, when they're, in, they're going to be um, at university, they're going to have to do a lot independently. And that does place demands on things like, you know, their ability to resist procrastination, um, their ability to, to locate and to evaluate their sources independently and their ability to be disciplined when it comes to the, the act of you know, reading and writing and taking notes and things like that. Uh, and psychology can help with all of those things. It's just trying to get that engagement with basic psychology, even if they only engage quite superficially. There's the stuff out there which could really be a benefit from in helping them make that transition um, and making sure that studying doesn't become something they start to resent. Um, I always say that studying should be, you know, it shouldn't fall into that category of what cannot be enjoyed must be endured. Uh, if you study effectively, you can start to enjoy it and start to really benefit from it. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Paul. You're very welcome, Emma. A nice speaking to you. And, you know, I, I wish you all the best with the tutoring again. Fantastic. All Have right. Great speaking to you, Emma. And, yeah, uh, you too. You know, I will see you around on Twitter, as it were. <laughs> Absolutely. Always cool. there. Bye-bye. Well, I have learnt a huge amount personally from Paul and I've actually been applying some of the techniques that he shared with us this morning.
Um, so I'd like to thank him yet again for giving me his time and his expertise because it was hugely valuable. Next fortnight, I'll be sharing an interview with Julia Silver, who is the founder and CEO of Qualified Tutor and of the Love Tutoring Festival. And here is a flavour of what is to come in that show. We all know that teachers have an impossible task and are given an impossible task by society that relies on them and doesn't admit to it. And tutors are sitting even behind that. Teachers and school league tables are relying on tutors without giving us the nurture and leadership and attention and standards and rigor and expectation and appreciation that we need. So that's sort of the space that I stepped into to bring my background as a school leader into tutoring because I believe that tutoring is a more gentle way to educate. So join me in a fortnight's time to learn more about Julia's experience in leadership and teacher well-being, as well as her journey into the forefront of tutor training. Until then, enjoy your final fortnight of freedom and I'll see you on the other side in September. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.